Welcome to How High Can You Jump? My name is Carter May and I'm a 17-year-old high school junior. Over the past few years, adults have asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? Pretty straightforward question that should be easy to answer, right? Well, it's not. At least it's not for most high schoolers. As it turns out, I've given it some thought and I do have an idea of what I want for my future and ultimately what I'll do when I grow up. So I'm on a mission to learn more. Join me as I have conversations with people whom I respect and admire, am inspired by, and am genuinely interested in learning more about their professional life story. We'll talk about what they studied in college, the twists and turns of their career path, and what they're doing today. I hope their stories inspire you so you have more confidence in answering the age-old question, what do you want to do when you grow up? Hey listeners, Carter May here. Welcome back to the pod. I'm thrilled about today's guest and I'm excited to share what we're talking about with Brad Kinsler, who's held multiple executive roles uh, in leadership within the Berkshire Hathaway organization. Uh, Most recently, Brad was president and CEO of Seize Candies, a role he held for 13 years. Brad managed the candy business that has been very good to Warren Buffett's bottom line uh, while satisfying his sweet tooth. So, hey Brad, uh, how are you doing today? Doing great, Carter. Thanks. It's great to have you on the podcast. So, Let's just let's just get started. So we're going to start off with uh, your high school years. So I'm familiar that you were born in Nebraska, graduated from Burke High School. Uh, tell me a little bit about your passions when you were younger. Well, let me let me first take you back that um, we had moved away from Omaha, and and I spent most of my childhood years in Indianapolis, and then in Columbus, Ohio, and. Uh, Started high school in Columbus, and and uh, after after about a year there, uh, my my mother packed up uh, myself and mm-hmm. my younger brother and sister, and took us back to Omaha. Um, she she had basically had enough of uh, my father at that point, mm-hmm. so so we wound up back in Omaha. And I finished my high school years back there. Mm-hmm. And and so that just kind of fleshes it out a little <laughs> yeah, bit. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. what was your question? Then? So uh I mean just give me a rundown a little bit of what your kind of passions were when you when you were younger. Younger like high school? Younger as in high school. Yeah, younger as as in high school. Okay. Yeah, I was younger at fifty, but my passions were a bit a <laughs> Yeah, there we there. go. Um so uh, high school for me was primarily uh, Centered around sports, primarily baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, played a little bit of golf. Uh, played trumpet uh, for one year in that band, and then uh, moved on from there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, but I worked every day in high school. I mm-hmm. didn't have I didn't have a lot of time uh, after school mm-hmm. uh, for different things. Uh, to happen, I, of course. So, um, so my life was very busy, but uh, I worked probably forty hours a week during high school, as well as uh, you know, fit in baseball and mm-hmm. and then schoolwork. Of course. Uh, so, I mean, I'm aware Omaha is a very big like farming area and all that kind of stuff. Did you have like an idea of a certain occupation or like future career that you wanted to? kind of delve into at that point? You know, um, I did when I started college, I was, uh, expecting I would go into engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 
my math skills are very good. Uh, I also uh, understand and appreciate the discipline uh, required for uh, design and and the various projects from mm-hmm. an engineering standpoint. And and so I believe that that was suited for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I started college right out of high school. It was a commuter college uh, there in Omaha. Mm-hmm. So I lived at home, commuted to to college, um, and it. After a semester, I actually wasn't sure that this is what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. That engineering was right for me, of course. Um, so, so I considered, what do I do now? Because I was paying for college myself, mm-hmm. my mom couldn't couldn't afford college, so. I was paying for it. I wasn't sure this is what I wanted to do. And, and I decided I really needed to, to get out into the world and get, make sure I had a plan that made sense for me. Of course. So 1972, uh, after I'd gone to college for a semester, I enlisted in the air force. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was Vietnam era and, uh, went into the air force for four years. Okay. And uh, it was stationed in various places, uh, Monterey, California, Texas, and Alaska. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, really matured and grew up you know, with, in the service oh, yeah. and, and the things that you need to do. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Uh, if you could tell me a little bit more about maybe some of the areas of focus that you had when you were kind of in, uh, in the Air Force. Um, and also... I understand that you uh, had to speak a little bit of Russian while you were there. So tell me a little bit yeah, about that. You know, coming out of basic training uh, at that time, I had two choices uh, of what they would offer me to do. And one was uh, being a bomb loader in Thailand. Mm-hmm. And the second was going to Monterey, California to study Russian language. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had, given us tests and I had an aptitude for language. And so they, they, uh, I elected to go to Monterey. Uh, I spent nine months there, uh, learning Russian, uh, from native Russians who had come over, of, you know, from Russia during the revolutionary period. Mm-hmm. And, and so they were teaching us in Monterey at a defense language, language Institute down there. Um, and there are many, many uh, languages being taught to all the service branches, as well as uh, CIA and FBI had had people stationed there as of well. Of course, yeah. And uh, so they uh, gave me a crash course on Russian, uh, and then uh, went down to uh, Texas, uh, San Angelo, Texas, and and trained on operating uh, radios, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they, they sent me to Alaska uh, to, um, to fly reconnaissance missions from uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, wow. around the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, so you spoke that Russian. Do you, uh, have you found that you've used it at all professionally? No. Just for fun? <laughs> no. Yeah. I, and and I, I, I'm not very fluent now. I wasn't that fluent then. Mm-hmm. Uh, my job was more to listen to military transmissions yeah. and uh, transcribe those, uh, send them off to NSA, and uh, where 
our missions and intelligence that that we gathered was was then put together with uh, whatever was coming in from all other sources mm-hmm. around the world mm-hmm. and um and that's what we did and and so our missions were relatively long and uh, coming out of Fairbanks and we would we would be listening and uh, transcribing what we heard very and, interesting and uh and matching that up, so I didn't. I didn't have to speak yeah. the language. Uh, I and I was better at hearing, uh, say, military conversation that mm-hmm. that might be about you know missiles and submarines and things like that, Recordings as opposed such, yeah. to you know somebody uh, walking into a grocery store and yeah. wanting a loaf of bread. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it wasn't in my vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I realized your next step was to go on and I mean study at a bigger institution. Uh, so University of Nebraska, go horn cut, go horn Huskers, uh, with a focus in poli sci and so then pre-law. So what motivated, uh, you, do you think, uh, to go towards that area of study? Well, you know, the, it, I was, I was exposed to, you know, a few different things, uh, in the service and, and as I, one, just spent a little more time, reading and and trying to get my arms around what what the the real world was like mm-hmm. outside of high school in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, the uh, there was an attraction for uh, for the law. I I you know, was was interested in studying it and I I'd read you know about certain cases that were happening and uh, you know that was just available to the public and mm-hmm. and and this this struck me as something that that I thought I could be good at, mm-hmm. and and so I took that course uh, of action in at University of Nebraska Omaha mm-hmm. um, with with an eye toward uh, graduating and going into law school and then practicing law. Of course. So uh, I mean, pre law, did you ever have an ambition to become a lawyer? Maybe or yeah. Okay. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I th- I thought that would be my next step, and and in fact, uh, had after graduation applied to various law schools and was accepted at University of Iowa Law School, and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, but was there a short time, and and uh, you know some family situation really got in the way of I was I was married at the time, and we we were struggling and and mm-hmm. ultimately separated and and so uh i needed to actually get out and get a job mm-hmm. and uh so that's that's what then had me uh looking around for at this point what could i do with mm-hmm. with that degree and and law seemed to be something that would be very difficult for me to to spend the time and and go through that more years of school yeah. and yeah. That stuff, yeah. So, um, so I wound up. <laughs> I met a guy who uh, had been with a consulting firm out of Chicago, mm-hmm. Alexander Proudfoot Company, and he uh, he talked to me a little bit about what they would do and and that that they were generally hiring. Uh, it sounded interesting to me that you know they would go into various businesses and mm-hmm. do projects and. And uh, so I, I made contact with them. I got an interview in Chicago. 
uh, learn more about uh, what what they did as consultants. Mm-hmm. It was primarily a, a firm that specialized in uh, reducing employee costs. Yeah, and uh, and so the uh, the projects would be with us going inside, mm-hmm. uh, understanding their business, looking at how they were staffed, how much work needed to be done, yeah. uh, and those kind of things. And mm-hmm. and ultimately, uh, during a project, there would be reductions of personnel mm-hmm. in the business to save them you know, some significant dollars. And, and so in that time period, I, I did that for uh, six or seven years and was in uh, telephone companies, uh, insurance companies, light manufacturing. Some steel. Uh, like that. Yeah, some steel, uh, 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 uranium mine for a hmm. while, semiconductor manufacturers. Hmm. Uh, you know, had, you know, was inside a number of different businesses. Mm-hmm, of course. And with a need for, to understand what they did and how we could assist them in getting the job done uh, better and more efficiently. Of course, yeah. And and that was very valuable experience for six years to see that many different companies and be on the ground uh, observing and understanding yeah. how that, that business worked yeah. and, and what you could come up with that would be beneficial for them and for their management team. And, uh, and, and again, it was, it was great experience. It was, it was kind of, uh, kind of graduate school and, in, in uh, business management yeah. uh, is kind of how it worked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, getting all that experience, like right out of college is something that's not very uh, common these days, I think. So, did you have any like internship opportunities in college to get you to that point? Or, I mean, were, were internships really like anything of significance back no, then? No, I mean, it It wasn't, they weren't available, you know, to to someone, you know, with, with my degree, political science. Mm-hmm. I, uh, if I'd have been in the business school, I would have had more options, I of think. Of course, yeah. But, uh, but nope, there, there weren't internships for me to, to get inside of, mm-hmm. of companies, uh, this was actually uh, the best situation for me. And 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 instead of just uh, being in one company, I was in dozens and dozens of companies. Mm-hmm. What do you think uh, are some attributes or like from your experience as a consultant, what do you think were some of those that prepared you to come into some of these leadership roles that you did later in your career? Or maybe well, some what was it, advice or something like that. Yeah. yeah what, what was very valuable was uh, my ability to, to get into a business and understand it from not, not as much of a technical standpoint as a business standpoint. Mm-hmm. And, and what were their operations and how did they work and what did they need to do and you know, what, what did their customers expect from them and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And, and when you see different businesses and you're evaluating from that standpoint, then when, and I was ready to kind of eat my own cooking mm-hmm. uh, when I came out of consulting. I, yeah. I'd been helping comp- companies to, to get better, but, but it's one thing to help them, but 
I really did want to be managing a business that mm-hmm. uh, that I was really a part of, part of the management. Of course, team. yeah. And and uh, so that that's really what pulled me from consulting to to find a position that was with a company where I would be on the staff of that company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and and what and I was pretty well prepared because of all of those years in the consulting field. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I then. Uh, was looking around for uh, companies in Omaha yeah. that uh, would be the right ones for me to apply to. And, and certainly at that time, uh, Berkshire Hathaway mm-hmm. was one of the better known companies, uh, had a number of different businesses, but weren't nearly the size at that time that they are now. Mm-hmm. But um, but I that's where I went to. Uh, put my resume in and and try to to make contact and and get an opportunity with Berkshire mm-hmm. and and fortunately I was able to do that. They had a f- couple of insurance companies in town, yeah, and that's where I was able to to start mm-hmm. and never been in insurance before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew how to buy insurance, but <laughs> didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm so much about the insurance business and and uh, got an opportunity with Berkshire to to start at Cornhusker Casualty Company mm-hmm. and then wow. uh, into some of the other uh, smaller insurance companies and that ultimately led me to to run an insurance company for Berkshire out in California Cypress Insurance and and from there I continued my career with Berkshire, with a couple of other companies. Yeah. But, uh, uh, that's, that's, that's how I got in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, what set me up uh, to, to at least uh, understand how to, how to get my arms around a Berkshire business mm-hmm. and make a contribution to it. And, and, you know, and it just takes that, work and effort and and your ability to to see a business for what it really is mm-hmm. uh, and how they do what they do and and what you see that is inefficient or that could be done differently and of better. course yeah um, you you uh, you said that Berkshire Hathaway was a pretty big business even then uh, could you tell me a little about a little bit about I mean was Berkshire Hathaway like a dream of yours to work forever? Well, it, it wasn't until I was into college and was paying much more attention to, you know, the business community. Out of course. There. Yeah. Uh, and, and you would certainly hear more in Omaha about what, what the latest was on Berkshire Hathaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it was certainly a, a well-known well-run uh, business and uh, with Warren Buffett in charge of it, uh, you know, it, it was it was a place that if you could go to work there, then that would be the plum. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, tell me a little bit about your time at Home State and Cypress Insurance Company. You said that you moved to California uh, for that job. So, tell me a little bit about that and maybe a little bit more on how you kind of grew your relationship with Warren Buffett a little bit. 
Yeah, the um, well, the insurance companies um, that I was at uh, to begin with, Cornhusker Casualty and Kansas Fire and Casualty, they, these were small, uh, single-state insurance companies mm-hmm. that, that uh, believed with that setup that they could select better risks and run a better business than a national company. And they were that, still run through Berkshire Hathaway? Yeah. There we yeah. go. Okay. So those were Berkshire businesses. Um, and, and where a national company would have underwriters, you know, maybe in Connecticut or someplace that were underwriting risks in Nebraska, mm-hmm. you know, an operation that's stationed in Omaha, Nebraska, mm-hmm. the underwriters could see that business firsthand and understand a lot about that mm-hmm. business and understand better how to price it. And as well as when there were claims from a business that was nearby, then you would be able to handle the claims more effectively. Yeah. So that was the, that was the business plan for those types of companies. And mm-hmm. Berkshire had a handful of those. And, and so by me getting an opportunity uh, to begin with in Cornhusker Casualty, uh, I was uh, overseeing after a short period of time, the claims department, you know, this was property casualty insurance and, and overseeing a claims department, you you get yourself into uh, the contract law side of the business, the uh, litigation and tort law, mm. uh, the various uh, well accounting processes that have to happen in mm-hmm. an insurance business. It's it's understanding uh, the costs of the claims that you're receiving mm-hmm. and how to book those and and how to uh, how to make sure that the financial statements of that company mm-hmm. uh, properly reflected the liabilities of course, that the yeah. company had, as well as the income. And insurance companies, it's all about uh, the claim side mm-hmm. uh, for what your costs are. Mm-hmm. And and you have to to be uh, you have to be accurate with uh, the number of claims that you have, the value of those potential claims, what mm-hmm. they could cost the business. Of course. Uh, even though those claims might not settle out for several years, mm-hmm. uh, you have to book those uh, yeah. and book those uh, as close as possible to what your true costs were. So, so Berkshire would, in their statements, then reflect their liabilities properly from every company that they had. Yeah. And and it was quite a process to to uh, to learn and and understand what it really took to uh, to have a have a proper accounting of an insurance company. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as well as how do you control your costs of you know primarily claims adjustment, mm-hmm. and how do you best impact that? And there are companies in business today. Uh, a number of very good insurance companies that really know how to handle claims mm-hmm. effectively, uh, can keep their costs down on that. Yeah, uh, that positions them to produce a bottom line that, yeah. that's very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, other companies that are not nearly as good at handling their yeah, costs, yeah. and you know, they won't. Yeah, are there different ways that uh, insurance companies now take precautions for that, or like, is there a more is there a more efficient way of doing that now than there was? Well, there's there's certainly more effective ways. Mm-hmm. If, if you're a large insurance company and you can 
uh, enter into agreements with, you know, certain types of businesses that would uh, supply you parts for automobiles. Yeah, yeah. Have claims or parts or places to adjust those claims that yeah. you know, could do a better job and at a lower cost. Then, then uh, there, you know, the the good companies will put tremendous effort into improving their operations and how they can control those costs. Of and, course. And, uh, and so there, there are more and more things developed all the time. And, yeah. and you see I mean, that, course, yeah. that some companies, you know, they, they put the devices on your car. Mm. So, so they know how fast you're driving and how many miles you're driving. And, and that helps them to underwrite your risk and mm. to okay. pri- properly price, uh, your risk different than somebody else. Okay. So, um, so yeah, there's more tools that are out there today, uh, than there used to be. And, and the companies that are really expert in managing their business, Mm -hmm. they, they're looking for every advantage that they can get. And Mm -hmm. they're just more and more available. Yeah, Yeah. So next, I mean, uh, you went into a business or a company known as I think it's called Fetchheimer Brothers. Yes, um, and that's again a Berkshire Hathaway company. Uh, what what kind of company is it? What what, what did your day to day look like? What yeah, yeah Fetchheimer uh, that was in basically a suburb of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, it was a, a company that Berkshire had bought in uh, the nineteen eighties. Mm-hmm. It's now a hundred and seventy year old company. Wow. And has been making uniforms, uh, public safety uniforms, oh, yes. police and fire, okay. uh, military uniforms, uh, postal uniforms, mm-hmm. and and their so their customers are uh, state and local and national police departments, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the military, the U.S. Navy, the Marine Corps, uh, and and then various other businesses that need uniforms. Yeah, and. and uh, not so much the low end uniforms, but the the higher end kind of dress blues and everything that a police yeah. officer would need to wear in the fire department. Of course, yeah, those kind of things. And and so Berkshire uh, Fetchheimer had been in that business when Berkshire bought them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a very solid business, and there, there's at the time there were about three companies in the United States that uh, that uh, serviced that type of business. Okay. Fetchheimer being one of them, it was the oldest of them. And uh, and so they manufactured those uniforms in uh, three different manufacturing plants here in the United States. Uh, it's one of the f- few sewing businesses that could afford to, to make uniforms here in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and primarily because the, um, the police departments and the military required made in the USA uniforms. Mm-hmm. So, oh, okay. so that your, yeah, your yeah. competition wasn't offshore. It was with other local US, US made, made yeah. manufacturing. And, um, and that was, that made it a very interesting business. It made it a good business because mm-hmm. you, you then had a chance to develop relationships with the police departments and secure a bid for their uniform business and, make it in our plants and and we made very high quality uniforms you can imagine you know what uh, police officers and firefighters go through and and the military and what what kind of 
punishment their uniform's going to yeah, get. I mean, and, the material's got to be <laughs> decent, yeah. you know. So, so yeah, you you really need to make a quality product, which Fetchheimer did, and and uh, and it it was you know a very good business. Um, and and again, a combination of manufacturing and retail in that business, and 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 so you really just needed to get your arms around. All right, what are all these uniforms that we need mm-hmm. to make, and how much do you do you have to carry an inventory and yeah. to support? And every police department they they tend to have their own uniforms, and some of them are designed differently. Mm-hmm. Than, of course, you know the the next city's police department uniforms and yeah. those things. So so it's a very specialized business. Uh, and it doesn't have these massive volumes that you might get in, say, the postal business. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but a good solid business had been around a long time, and and uh, it was it was doing well uh, for Berkshire uh, when the uh, the gentleman who uh, sold the business to Berkshire they stayed on and and ran it. But then uh, they had passed away, and, mm-hmm. and so Berkshire was at a point they needed, you know, to to get another individual in there yeah, to, yeah. to run the company, uh, and I wound up being the second one to go in after uh, after the brothers had passed. Okay, and and I, you know, was able to one get my arms around that, enjoy the living in the city of Cincinnati. I think it's a great place. Mm-hmm. And the business was, uh, again, very sound business um, and and a good business to to be involved with. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, uh, I really enjoyed it and, and, uh, and felt like, you know, that that was the type of business that gave you all the the challenges that that would come with yeah. you know a very specialized manufacturing operation as well as all the other segments of the yeah, business. Yeah. Uh, interesting thing about Fat Timer, it had been around so long that they made uh, Civil War uniforms. Wow! For both sides, that's wild. Union and Confederacy. That's <laughs> yeah. wild. That was, there we go. There's that, something. That was a story there. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, I mean, your role at this point. Uh, Climbing up the ranks through Berkshire, uh, tell me a little about a little bit about what your what your main role was at this point. Like you said, you took over after the brothers, um, but I mean, title wise, does that mean CEO or president or what? What what title does that mean? Uh, uh, yes, I was uh, president and CEO of Fetchheimer. And for how long? Of and that was about six years. Okay, very um, interesting. Yeah, and uh, so I was president of Cypress Insurance uh, in California, mm-hmm. and then moved to uh, Cincinnati. Then moved to Cincinnati. There we go. And then uh, after I was there for six years, then uh, Chuck Huggins, who was running Seas Candies mm-hmm. since Berkshire had bought uh, Seas Candy, in yeah. 1972, I think it was. Um, Chuck had been at Seas and. When when they bought C's, they asked Chuck, who was one of the managers mm-hmm. on staff, to oversee the business, and and so Chuck did, beginning at that time, and and then uh, up until uh, he was retiring in January of two thousand six, mm-hmm. and and I I was asked if I would 
want to go out and take over the seas when Chuck retired. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, obviously that, that was a great move and, and certainly wanted to do that. And, and so for the year of 2005, I split my time between seas and fetch arm, hmm. uh, learning the seas business while Chuck was still there. Uh, and continuing to run Fetchheimer and search for my replacement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so getting ready to go into that business and yeah. disease. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is definitely the part where all my all my listeners are most most uh, fond to listen about. So uh, were you? I mean, were you chosen for this for this role at Seas Candies, or did you kind of have to pursue it yourself uh, by the previous CEO? No, it was the uh, the same as for Fetchheimer. Um, I just got the phone call. You know, we'd like you to go to Fetchheimer and and take over the that company, and and agreed to do that. And then uh, when uh, Chuck was preparing to retire, then it was a phone call. Do you want to go out of, <laughs> to Seas and mm-hmm. take that over? Very and, interesting. And that was how it worked. Yeah, I mean, Seas was a extremely. I th- I'm aware that it's 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 a very very small investment for uh, for Warren, uh, but they seem to cite it very frequently, which I found uh, very kind of funny. But uh, tell me why you think Seas Candies uh, was why why Warren was so keen on it, um, and why it's delivered so well back to you know the main business in Berkshire. Yeah. Um. Well, you've, you know, the the acquisition of Seas was the the Sea family uh, again. The um, the CEO uh, who was running it at the time he mm-hmm. passed. Okay. The Seas the Sea family did not have another family member who was interested in taking over the business, mm-hmm. so they were marketing it and. And Warren and Charlie, uh, you know, got that information that, that Seas was on the market, mm-hmm. um, and we're looking at the business. and And Charlie, being from California, mm-hmm. certainly understood that business well, of course, um, and how uh, how strong it was uh, from. You know the the customers, the loyalty that they had, the type of business that they ran, and and of course Charlie, you know, recently passed, mm-hmm, unfortunately, and and he was instrumental in convincing Warren on the purchase of Seas, mm. and and they ultimately agreed on on a price mm-hmm. that was twenty five million dollars uh, for to buy the business mm-hmm. and agreed to do it. Um, met with Chuck Huggins and got him to agree to run it. Mm-hmm. And, and from that point, I mean, Seas was, was a profitable company. It had been around, you know, since 1921 and all of that and was a, a very successful business that certainly made it through the recession and, and, you know, some very difficult times. Mm-hmm. And, but it had this terrific product, this customer loyalty that was very hard to come by. And, and it was just a, 
terrific business. And and Charlie and Warren could see it, and, and it was just a matter of you know coming up with the price for it. And, of course. And once they they got that hammered down, then Chuck ran the business uh, for you know <laughs> for a long time after that uh, till two thousand five, mm-hmm. and and in that time, seas continued to expand. Uh, of course, put more stores out there. Uh, you know, got. You know, a few other things going and just ran a terrific business mm-hmm. that um, was incredible. And and for me to to be able to get into C's then and see uh, how that business was run and and why it was so successful. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's 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 a real story. Mm-hmm. Uh, C's is such a seasonal business and. You know, you're you've got 35, 40 percent of the year's profits that are coming from Christmas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right now my 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 house is full of those seeds candy. So there you go. And you have, you know, it's it was uh, something like seventy percent of the year was was going to to come from Christmas, Valentine, Easter, and Mother's Day. Mm -hmm. And and you if you hit all of those holidays. With strong sales and good products, then your your year is great, mm-hmm. and and C's could could do it. They they it was very manually run uh, with lots of paper on walls and everything yeah. else, but, but but they they knew how to how to run it and mm-hmm. ramp it up. Um, we would we would ramp up from fifteen hundred employees that were the baseline employees that we would have in summertime. Wow. To 6,000 employees for the holidays. And we, and we would ramp them up uh, beginning in September. Hmm. And, and they would stay through Christmas. Then they'd come back for the Valentine production and, and Valentine sales in the retail shops. And then Easter. And, and then many of them would, would then be laid off and would come back again the following Christmas. Yeah. And it was so that, it's very methodical. Yeah, it was, the they, they were temporary, but they came back mm. every year. They, yeah. they really liked the work. They they it fit with their lifestyle and mm-hmm. and um and and when you have a company that has to ramp up that hard during those seasons. Yeah, year after year. Yeah. You you get very good at Making that happen, and, mm-hmm. and you've got have to have a human resources department oh, that's course, right on yeah. top of it, and, and and again, we were manufacturing, we were warehousing, we had two hundred retail shops, and mm-hmm. and every one of those operations needed to ramp up mm-hmm. for the holidays, and uh, and that was it was an, an experience uh, just to just to understand you know, how this business operated and what you have to do to, uh, uh to hit it right. Yeah, of and, course. Uh, and it, it's, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a great business. And, uh, Warren and Charlie, I mean, they, they appreciate it so much. It was one of the, one of the first ones that they really bought Okay, that, uh, was, was a home run like C's candy. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and it's, and it is today. It's it's still uh, out of all the 
the different candies in the country mm-hmm. uh, sees has the most and most profitable retail shops of any other candy company. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, your time there, how do you, how do you believe that you personally capitalized on some of those seasonal, seasonal times, or, I mean, in a different sector of the business? I, I think that the, the idea of free sampling came about when you were when you were there? No, that was already there. That was before. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, then we'll just go into that. What yeah. do you? How do you think <laughs> that changes, you know, the business model? Because the free sampling, uh, it 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 definitely does wonders. I've seen. So how do you? How would you say uh, it, it it brings more to the company and how it's become so much so much more successful? You know, it's it's the best marketing that the company did. Oh, of course. Of uh, and there's. There's a cost to it. There, you know, we were, we were, you know, in the neighborhood of a million pounds yeah. uh, of candy that was being sampled. Free samples. And, and, <laughs> yeah. And, and people would come in, some people would come in every day for their free sample and, and they wouldn't buy. That's crazy. Um, but we didn't worry about it. Yeah. We, we knew at some point they were buying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and. Yeah, if we had to, to give them a sample every day, then that's what we would yeah. do. Uh, it's uh, people people love the free samples, mm-hmm. and, and people will come in and they'll get their free sample, and and you know most people they they will buy yeah, just yeah. because that that flavor is in their mouth and it's terrific, and they can't help themselves. Oh at yeah, that I, point. I know definitely. Yeah. I've had so one too. So many yeah, years. it's um, it's a Great thing to do. It, there's there's cost to it, but the benefits far outweigh the cost. Yeah, and uh, it was it was one of those things that uh, started with the C family, and it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, never never would have thought about changing that. Mm-hmm. There's some things that you have to understand. You know, when you're approaching that third rail, and, and you you don't want to get on that. Yeah. One. <laughs> you yeah, just, yeah. You just realize this is good for, you know, you don't mess with this. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and that was, you know, the free samples. It was, uh, it was so valuable yeah. in bringing us customers and, and keeping them happy. And, and, and that was the great thing about working in the candy business. Yeah. Your customers are happy. Yeah. They, it's not, it's not like the insurance business where people <laughs> have to buy yeah. <laughs> and maybe mad policy. at you at some point. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's it's a business where when they come into the store, that should be one of their best experiences of the day. Yeah, because they are they're in there to buy something that's just a terrific product. Yeah, and and uh, and that's so our employees you know, who were in the shops they were very good at customer service. They were they were generally the happiest people, and they they did a great job in handling the customers. Yeah. and. And so our customer service was good. The product was good. Uh, we sold a pound of candy at Seize Candies was a lower price than any other box chocolate, mm-hmm. any other premium box chocolate. Oh, of course, in yeah. the country. Mm-hmm. And and that's what made the Seize business so good. Is the other candies couldn't match what Seize did mm-hmm. with that quality and that flavor. At a price point that, was when, I, when I was there, we would we would be selling one pound box for 
twenty dollars, mm-hmm. and the uh, some of the other premium box chocolates out there were most of those were selling for forty dollars, wow, fifty dollars, and and it was no wonder that that we sold so many more pounds of candy mm-hmm. than they would sell. Yeah, it's the, the value were just was more great, ideal and and the service was great, yeah. and so it was it just worked. I mean, yeah, it definitely proves a testament to what you were mentioning earlier within the you know, customer retention rate and all that kind of stuff. I think it goes a long way as, as, as we've, we've talked about here. Um, so now in our podcast, we're here to what we call the lightning round. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not, uh, I mean, lightning, you don't have to go fast. You can answer the questions at whatever speed, but they're kind of just fun questions that we would like to hear from you. So uh, for the first question, uh, what is your favorite candy from C's Candies and explain why, please. Well, my go-to piece of candy was uh, always the uh, coconut cream. Mm-hmm. I I like the coconut cream, and I liked it in milk chocolate. Yeah, uh, but but I would always like to have uh, the peanut brittle around. Mm-hmm. It's incomparable. It's the best peanut brittle best that ever. you can get. Best ever. And uh, so, but I can tell you that there's so many. Good pieces of candy. Yeah, I know the that, choices are. <laughs> it's uh, like I yeah. just, you know, I, I, I would go down into the plants and I'd, I'd walk the lines and I'd see the candy rolling down the conveyor belts mm-hmm. and and there's nothing like mm-hmm. nothing like getting a fresh piece of candy that's been recently coated mm-hmm. right off the end of that belt. Beautiful. It's. It's the best candy there is. It's yeah. so fresh, and and you know I liken it to uh, homemade bread, or you know when you when you have freshly baked bread, how good mm. that is. Freshly made candy has the same the equivalent uh, flavor characteristic yeah. that it's incomparable at that point. That's it's amazing. so much different. Wow, that's also one of the secrets to seize candies, though, um, is. Seas doesn't put any preservatives mm. in its candies. Mm. So we have a shelf life that we've determined for every piece of candy when it has reached its peak flavor. Mm-hmm. Typically on, on a coated chocolate piece of candy, it's, it's shelf life in, in our terms would be between 45 and 60 days. That that piece of candy is now at its optimum flavor. Mm. We didn't want to sell that candy when it passed the optimum flavor. Yeah. So, so we would, we managed the business to make and sell the product generally within 60 days. Wow. So it had to get out of the manufacturing plants, into the warehouse, into the retail shops and sold within a two-month window. Yeah. And that was a candy that the customer was going to get that was at its absolute best. And when a box of candy reaches its pull date Mm -hmm. that we would have on every box, Mm -hmm. when it reaches that pull date that's where it's 60 days old, we would pull it. Wow. We would not sell that candy. And... um. And when you look at any other box chocolate that's out there, there are preservatives in there, number one. Number two, 
that candy could be out there on the shelf for a year before you buy it. Mm-hmm. That's a huge difference. And it, and it is one of the reasons why when you eat these candies, it delivers a flavor that is incomparable. Because it's so fresh. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, next, what kind of completely switching here, switching, switching boats, but uh, what do you like to do in your free time now? I mean, you're retired, uh, have grandchildren. So tell me a little bit about, a little bit about that. Yeah, we, um, well, we're, we're traveling more. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have nine grandchildren now and they're, they're scattered anywhere from Arizona to Sacramento to Minneapolis. And, and so we have wow. plenty of places to go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we have a, a second home down in Arizona that uh, we love to go to. Mm. So we are spending time there. Uh, we, yeah, we, we travel abroad, you know, probably, you know, once a year that we'll take that, that type of a trip Very and, fun. and, and see things that, you know, we haven't experienced and seen before. Very, very fun. Uh, and, uh, and aside from that, uh, my wife and I both like to play golf, and mm. and and I have plenty of time now to to just uh, read about what's happening in the world and, and <laughs> yeah. think about those other issues. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, yeah, we we keep busy and and got a lot of time to solve the world's problems. So there <laughs> we go. Uh, I saw another really like fun thing that I didn't actually know about you whatsoever was that uh, you were on an episode of. Uh, you know, the celebrity apprentice. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about that experience and how maybe fun it was. And I mean, did you have to fire anyone? <laughs> no, I was, um, the celebrity apprentice was, uh, they were, they came into, you know, our facility. Oh, okay. To, mm-hmm. to, uh, to use our facility for them to create, you know, candies ah. uh, as, the celebrities mm-hmm. and and uh, so we were we were there to one show them you know how how the candy would be made to help them you know mix up some ingredients and make centers and then yeah. enrobe them and those kind of things and and it was it was a lot of fun uh, there were you know some celebrities in there that yeah, you know, they're they're just they they select people that are very interesting mm-hmm. and and big personalities and all of that. Yeah, and and that was it was just a lot of fun to to do that. And at sees we would get um, celebrities uh, several times a year. Mm-hmm. We would we would have you know a program that wanted to come into sees and and do a shoot right inside, you know, as the candies being made or in, in the retail shops, you know, during a very busy time. So we had Ellen DeGeneres who came in and, and she was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, She, she was so fun Mm -hmm. uh, going through the plant, uh, entertaining the employees as she went through. And, and, and that's, and again, it's, it sees we're, we're, we're our manufacturing plant in Southern California. It's in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It's it's easy for for them in Los Angeles to quickly, you know, put a group together, come into the plant, and yeah. and record and 
and do things live or uh, or again, you know, they're recording them for you know so they can clip them and then send them out later. But but um, it was it was a norm for us to to get celebrities or programs that wanted to come in and and be in our facility and many times at Christmas time, but, but other times it's, it's just, you know, whenever they, they, they felt like they wanted to have a special episode and, mm. and they knew Seize Candies was a terrific place to, to come in and yeah. do a shoot. So. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about, a little bit about the world's uh, largest lollipop. Yeah. I've heard a lot about that and uh, it's another little fun thing to talk about. So. Yeah, that was, um, that was, I don't know how many, when that was, 2011 or 12, something okay. like that. And, and, and yeah, I'd, I'd been in the business for a while and I, I continued to want to, to do things that would have C's name out there mm-hmm. and do it in a fun way. Of course. That, um, that again, just would get us exposure and, and give us an opportunity just to keep promoting the brand. Mm. So, um, so I decided, you know, we ought to try to, to do something that would get us into the Guinness book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and as we're looking at that and thinking about it, you know, I said, well, you know, it looks like we could make a lollipop bigger than the previous <laughs> yeah. you know, largest lollipop. Yeah. And, and I really thought we could pull that off. It would be great. I could visualize that massive lollipop being covered in, you know, the the C's gold wrap that mm-hmm. we use over lollipops. And and uh, so the engineers went to work on how we would do it and how big the mold needed to be and mm-hmm. how we would, you know, mix up enough of, you know, the lollipop candy mm-hmm. to get it into the mold and have it cool down and harden. And, and then what would we use for a stick? Because the stick would have to be, you know, like Much bigger than 25 feet stick. long. So, so they, uh, they went to work on that project and, and we figured it out and sure enough, you know, we made the world's largest lollipop. Uh, we uh, hoisted it onto a truck. We carted it around into downtown San Francisco and yeah. different places. And, mm. And uh, and showed it around, and we got great publicity from it. Mm. Uh, you know, th- we did it in a time where you know business is slow after Mother's Day, mm. so so we kind of worked it in yeah. there, and and it made sense. I mean, that marketing and, is great. Yeah, and it and it uh, it had the effect that you know we hoped it would, and yeah. we continued to to always look for you know what else could we do? We just you know wanted people to see sees see it out there and something that that they would kind of look at and say, that's very cool. Or <laughs> second or something at, like that, yeah. at the Berkshire Hathaway meetings, you know, we, they, there would be, uh, you know, 30, 40,000 people at mm. the meetings and at C's, we would have a booth there selling C's candies to the shareholders. Of course. And, and, uh, and so I, we would always try to think, what are we going to do? Put in our booth that will be interesting for the shareholders. Mm. And so, so the one year we built a uh, a complete house that it was only uh, 400 square feet something like that that was made of uh, fudge boxes. Wow, these candy fudge boxes. That's so, funny. Uh, and there was 
actually we put a desk in it and Warren came in and he, you know, signed, you know, some things mm. at the desk. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, he, uh, and of course the cameras are following Warren oh. everywhere he goes All at the, the annual meeting. And, and uh, we would do those things just, just because it sounded fun yeah. and we knew, you know, we would get the coverage for it because it's, it's season as Berkshire Hathaway and you know, yeah. it's, it's going to work. Great publicity. Yeah. Um, and then I, I feel like a little bit wrapping this up, uh, uh, no pun intended, but um, what what does it feel like to be, a lot of people have said the modern day Willy Wonka. So how does that, how does that feel? Yeah. <laughs> you Good know, that, that is something that, that it does come up now and then uh, that I get, um, you know, I, there's, there's actually some students here that, refer to me as uh, Papa Wonka. And <laughs> there you go. that's, uh, you know, it just follows you around. You're like, okay, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess that's who I am now. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, the C's was, it's so well known as a business in California mm-hmm. and it's not as well known on the East coast, but, but here it is. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a constant and we're, we intend to be in, every home at every holiday. Mm. And, and so we, we have products that are designed for these holidays. We're always there. We're, we're there. There are family gatherings. You know, we are in tune with, you know, what the family's all about and what that holiday is about for them and how do we package products that, that fit and, and, and we're, we're visible and we are there to help in that holiday celebration. Mm. And, and so uh, it's, it's something that, you know, being out here, you know, the, the CEO of C's, it, it just carried that uh, kind of distinction. Yeah, that mantra, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's amazing. Uh, so, I mean, my last question is, I mean, here on our How High Can You Jump podcast, we have this kind of trademark question. Um, so here we go. Knowing what you know now, uh, what advice would you give your 17 year old self? So this wraps up mm. like your whole life, your high school, all your, all your career years, all this kind of stuff. What would you tell your 17 year old self? Um, I just, I would just tell myself, you know, go ahead and trust that y- your abilities and focus are going to work mm. and don't doubt yourself mm. just just stay with it and and i mean i i know i did that and and i think you know for me i had great opportunities uh, at berkshire uh, that you know i i wouldn't have gotten in other large companies mm. and it's it's because of how they run things and uh, the way that that Warren you know works with his managers of mm-hmm. the businesses that he he gives them that responsibility and Berkshire is not over your shoulder all the time to you know telling you this is what you need to do yeah it's it's they up to the managers to run it, and and it's um, it's the best company in the world to work for. Mm. It certainly fit 
you know, for me. And, and it, and again, it wasn't Berkshire, you know, they weren't looking for, uh, for managers that fit a particular mold of, you have to have this, this kind of education, this kind of advanced degree and those kind of things Mm -hmm. to, to run a Berkshire company. Um, Berkshire's, uh, has, has people throughout it that are running businesses that, uh, in some cases had no degree and mm-hmm. ran, have run and were running very, very successful businesses just because they were good at business and they were dedicated to that particular business. They were focused on what needed to happen mm-hmm. for that business to be successful. And, and they, they could turn a profit and develop a, customer following that was great and consistent uh, and yeah. just by running a business the right way and it and it's it was more about you know how to just how to outwork it and make sure that you were always on top of what what needed to get done for mm-hmm. that business and and again um you know, I don't have the degree that the pedigree, those kind of things mm. uh, that uh, many large companies would look for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm not unusual for uh, somebody at Berkshire mm-hmm. that was given an opportunity to do something. And, and simply because, you know, you, you were going to, to tackle it the right way and, and, continue to stay at it. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's, that's how I got to where I, you know, where I, you know, concluded you know, yeah. my, my experience at Berkshire and, and at the different C's or Berkshire businesses mm-hmm. was simply, uh, just trying to, just trying to do what, uh, what Berkshire was looking for in, the management of their business. Of course. And, and that's not, uh, there's not a blueprint that they were, Mm -hmm. that they were following that said, you always had to have these kind of credentials and and that kind of thing. It's otherwise I wouldn't have gotten the opportunities that I did. Wow. Wow. That's so great. Well, that's the podcast. Thank you again so much, Brad, for spending your time here today and sharing your experience with me. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today on How High Can You Jump? We hope you enjoyed this insightful conversation as much as we did. If you found value in today's episode, please consider subscribing or leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find our video versions on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Can't wait to see you next time on How High Can You Jump?